1: PlushCare.com slash weight loss.
0: Leading London architects called out over Qatar World Cup. China's new embassy next to Tower Hill denied planning permission. Conservationists rage over green light for National Gallery overhaul and Open City names its new chair and board. My name is Merlin Fulcher, I'm an architectural journalist and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The Lundown. My guest here at Bureau and Design District is Marsha Rambu. Marsha is a journalist and the former Director of Inclusion at the RIBA. Welcome to the show.
1: Really brilliant to be here, Merlin. Thank you so much for asking me to join. I'm really looking forward to this conversation.
0: As FIFA World Cup Qatar enters its third week and England moves towards its quarterfinal showdown with France, controversy continues to rage over the tournament and its architecture, which have been dubbed fundamentally unsustainable and a climate catastrophe. The seven-year-long construction project, estimated to have costed between £5.7 billion and £8.7 billion, has resulted in eight stadiums. Many of them are designed by internationally celebrated architects, uh, including the London-based practices Zaha Hadid Architects and Foster and Partners. Qatar, the first Middle Eastern country to host the Games, has defended itself against multiple accusations of human rights abuses, which span from the conditions experienced by the migrant workers who built the stadiums to the attitudes towards the LBGTQ plus community. So, Marsha, briefly, what's this all about and why is it creating such a storm in London's architecture media?
1: Well, I mean, it's just a massive story, isn't it? Um, there's so much to, to say about it. Um, and I think when we're thinking about issues of, you know, whether it should be happening, what, what about the the buildings that are there, the sustainability, the, the people who have died um, to create them, there are just so many things uh, to think about because ultimately, when it comes to inclusion, we're thinking, well, shouldn't shouldn't Qatar have the World Cup? What's wrong with you know spreading something as successful and as uniting as football into the Gulf? There's something really important about trying to do that. But how that is done and making sure that that's done in a way that feels like it is inclusive and respectful, both of the local culture and of the Understanding of wider cultures coming together is tricky. And what's kind of happened behind all of that is FIFA haven't really put the thought in to make sure that those considerations have been given proper thought. Gianni Infantino, the FIFA president, you know, gave this extraordinary, you know, speech, this diatribe before the tournament started arguing that um, who, who are the rest of the world? Who, who's the UK? Who's the US to criticise Qatar? And actually, you know, there's a real point there when it comes to human rights, you know, how women are treated. Um, You know, looking at the moment, trans lives in the UK, they're really worried about how um, the discussions are going around the Equality Act and gender reassignment being taken out of it. All those kinds of things, you know, they're real issues. The UN vociferously criticising the UK for its increase in racism since Brexit. I mean, these are real issues happening in other places. So how can any of us turn to Qatar and say you don't deserve to have the world cup you've got terrible human rights but when you consider issues of human rights you know other newspapers guardian for example reported uh, last year more than 6500 migrant workers from south asian countries have died since um qatar got the right to hold the world cup can that can that be defended by fifa can that be defended by the architectural firms who agreed to support this idea. And with the stadia themselves being built, monumental environmental impact. I think it was Arab who were behind the design concept. And um, apparently the words that I heard were they were commissioned to demonstrate that the intense climate of Qatar's summer no longer need to be a barrier to hosting global events well amazing brilliant but just because something can be done does that mean that it should and i think there's an amount of hubris there um you know and i look at man's hubris really and that's deliberate genderization it should never be a defining factor in these pro- projects now of course you know i agree that nations should embrace all sports and so on, so on but there was a different way forward to getting um, the World Cup into the Gulf. And it didn't have to be at the loss of so many lives and with so many moral judgments, where, you know, a woman can't hold a woman and give her a kiss in public.
0: There's a huge amount of attention on what's happening in Qatar. Uh, The architecture media here in London is really focusing on the ethics of the architects and the engineers and everyone who's involved in it. But if we think about it, we know that these industries based in London do a lot of work internationally. Um, They do a lot of work for dubious regimes, whether it's in the Middle East or it's in China. Um, They do a lot of environmentally destructive work, despite all of the pledges. Um, Is it hypocritical to just focus on Qatar and just to say, oh, here's Qatar, this is the big example of it all going wrong? Or is this, uh, does this deserve this attention because it's such a, a big kind of media showcase, getting the whole world's attention, a kind of propaganda exercise?
1: Well, I think when it comes to highlighting hypocrisy, uh, it's not an either or. It's a this and. Let's look at what we're doing in Qatar. Let's look at what we're doing in China. But also, let's look at what we're doing at home. Grenfell. When it comes to morality... And ethics behind what we're doing, how we're doing it, ultimately comes down to how are we placing value? If we're placing value only in terms of pounds and pence, we will always, we will always come a cropper. And where we should be placing value is in humanity, in our fellow person and in our planet. Because um, money is just a, a transactional Um, tool for us it should never be the means to an end and if we're looking to cut corners so that we can get money in or pay money out rather than looking at the impact of that spend on people and on the planet then we you know as 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 a profession as a built environment sector we will be letting down the people and the environment we're supposed to be serving As far as I'm aware, architecture is a vocation, which is supposed to be for the benefit of the public and is supposed to be for the benefit of the planet. And so when we stray away from that, we're not really producing great architecture at all. And isn't that what all architects strive for?
0: of course and this is it i mean obviously we're a media review show so it's interesting to talk about how architects in their own press releases presented these projects uh so for example uh the foster and partners Sale stadium uh it's supposed to according to the descriptions by the architects represent a traditional bowl or a lantern zaha Hadid's al-janoub stadium uh, is supposed to look like a dow sail that's the traditional sailing boat from the area um Now, interestingly, uh, Rowan Moore, uh, he's an architecture critic for The Observer, uh, described it as a bit of a gift shop, perhaps a bit condescending, but kind of like this idea that everybody has to liken their building to something else. Uh, If we're going to give the buildings a chance to justify themselves on their own raw architectural terms, what's your take on them Uh, in terms of the visuals you've seen? uh, Are you impressed by the architecture? Uh, What Zaha Hadid architects, what Foster and partners have, have created out there?
1: Well I think at this point Merlin I really need to point out that I'm not an architect (laughs) so um, I I feel quite uncomfortable to, to, to give my opinion on those only to say that I know that these firms have justified and do justify their involvement in morally and ethically sort of questionable projects with the view that well, if we don't do it, then maybe someone less morally and ethically minded might do it. Um, and so um, I'm uh, less sort of bothered by what things look like and I'm more concerned about the impact on um, the local people, especially um, the context of the, of the environment in which it's being set, the kind of resources that are used and so architectural merit should never just be on aesthetics. There's just so much more to consider whether something is actually good or great architecture or not. And um I think this is where there is a bit of a rabbit hole when it comes to what's celebrated around architecture. And shouldn't we be looking more at uh, you know, these other elements rather than just the aesthetics? actually, if we're really going to do something different, we need to think in a fundamentally different way about what it means to be a great architect.
0: We know there will be more mega events and more tournaments and Olympic Games and so on, more football, uh, World Cups. And Is there a way that events on this scale can happen in a truly sustainable way? Uh, is it that um, in the future we should be looking at reusing existing structure for everything? Uh, for example, would that be is that feasible, or, or does that um, actually take out the kind of economic development potential? You no, know, Lon- London did benefit from a whole load of new rail infrastructure when it hosted the games.
1: In- indeed, and I think that um, that one of the the key selling points of London 2012. Not that I think it, you know, I'm sure there were many issues with it, but it was all about legacy. It was all about how will. The the structure, the infrastructure, those buildings, um, everything serve the people um, who live in the environment, you know, in an ongoing way, as well as from a sporting legacy point of view. But to go back to your, your original question about, you know, mega events and bringing people together and Naomi Klein in her book, This Changes Everything, said that um, she would she would argue. That we need to fundamentally look at how we interact with each other, how much we travel, how much we build, uh, the way that we are creating new disposable things. And that we fundamentally, each one of us on this planet, especially those of us in the inverted commas Western world, need to look at how we live our lives if we're going to have any chance of saving this planet. And so um, do we look at, you know, using existing infrastructure? Yes. But do we actually need to look at, are we really going to be spending 220 billion US dollars on one sporting event? when there's so much inequality in our world? Isn't that really the question?
0: So Foster and Partners, who designed the main stadium, the Sale Stadium, um, in press releases, they've sought to distance themselves from sort of responsibility for some of the things that have been uh, accusations surrounding the Games. Uh, but just with this week, the practice has been unveiled as a winner of the competition to design the new King Salman International Airport in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. It's another country which has been criticised for its attitudes to migrant workers and women's rights. So, Marsha, what do you make of this? I mean, it is the biggest architecture practice in the uk
1: yes and um i would love for foster and partners to ask themselves some of these questions and it's not just the architects though i mean you know i i really worry about in these firms that have been involved in creating these um these stadia or any other infrastructure out in qatar those people who are Um, those people who are LGBTQ plus it within from those communities in those firms or, or women you know how do they feel how do they feel about being part of those projects I don't know enough about that particular project in Saudi Arabia but we shouldn't ask firms not to work in these countries but to think about how do they do so well, acknowledging that values and belief systems are very different and coming to a shared perspective, which means that the architecture is done in a way that feels like it can be morally and ethically upheld.
0: And so just, just stepping back from the consultancy and looking at direct investment, we know there's, there's very close ties between the UK and Qatar. And between and London in particular, so we know that the Shard, Chelsea Barracks, East Village on the Olympic Park, a big chunk of Canary Wharf are owned by Qatar's sovereign wealth fund. Um, TFL has recently stepped up to ban the country's adverts on the Underground network and its advertising that it controls. And in Qatar's reportedly, according to the Guardian, um, reviewing its current and future investments in the UK capital as a result, Uh, is London potentially missing out here? could another UK city benefit? Um, has London missed its opportunity to sort of push back and shape Qatari society in a progressive way um, th- through these economic ties?
1: Really interesting question, because the uh, presumption within is that London and and those in British people or British values are somehow better than Qatari ones. Um, you could argue that... Uh, you know, for London to accept this money is simply to uh, promote wealth and, uh, you know, British well-being. Isn't that a good thing? But then where does that money, what what cost is that money? Is it oil? Is it fossil fuels? Well, how does that balance with, you know, British um, uh, political and environmental value around wanting to become carbon neutral? These things are you know seem to be quite exclusive i don't know how they can be mutually beneficial there that you accept for uh, money that comes from fossil fuels and then say you want to be carbon neutral it doesn't doesn't seem to work but at the same time, I don't really think that it's for British people to say or the British government or for London or the financial system over here to say we are going to be the ones to determine what is morally right. And therefore our you know decision making is going to influence you in Qatar. I don't think it's that either.
0: Tower Hamlet's council has rejected David Chipperfield Architect's plans to rework the former Royal Mint at Tower Hill into London's largest embassy complex. The scheme would have created embassy space, accommodation, offices and a cultural centre for the Chinese embassy within a range of existing buildings at the historic 2.3 hectare Royal Mint site opposite the Tower of London. But the council rejected the plans following a unanimous vote at its Strategic Development Committee, despite being recommended for approval by planning officers. This was reported by Will Ng in the Architects' Journal this week, where you can also find lots of visuals showing the proposals. So, Marsha, what do the designs look like uh, and why have they proved so controversial?
1: I think anything to do with the Chinese government in London is going to be controversial. And again, it comes down to um, different value systems and different beliefs and so on. I think there's so many layers to this. There's um, the, the the way the Chinese government is in the world right now. There's the way the treatment of the Uyghur people. There's the way in which the government in china tend to conduct themselves on the global platform what does that look like what does that feel like to british people um and all of these questions when you when you pull them all together it results in this kind of outcome it's interesting because obviously opposite 66 portland place <laughs> is... which is
0: the riba headquarters on yeah. If you look at the visuals, I mean, it is quite an impressive bit of proposed architecture. Like, I mean, David Chipperfield, they're very good designers. Um, it's going to convert, uh, restore these historic buildings, which obviously sort of date back quite a long way and have played this role making coins uh, for for the UK. Um, and then there's some postmodern things behind it from the 80s, which rather than just being demolished, as typically happens, they're going to be reconfigured and converted and made to look all tasteful and fit in with the other stuff. Um, so it doesn't seem like... It's the controversies around the architecture. Uh, we know that some of the objections and the concerns from councillors uh, were to do with with the potential for protests, uh, for the fact that, um, like you're saying, at Portland Place in the last few weeks, massive protests blocked the road uh, outside the Chinese embassy. Um, but also, when the rejection was handed down uh, in the planning committee, there were cheers from the public gallery. So Tower Hamlets Town Hall was packed with residents and protesters against the Chinese government for its treatment of the Uyghur people. Um, so... Are we seeing here a planning outcome which is upholding an ethical principle entirely outside of architecture and planning or is this actually all about the planning? Is this actually all about the architecture?
1: I think there are probably several things at play. However I do think there is probably, you know you talked about TFL and the advertising Qatari things, there is something inherent in, G- in the GLA, the Greater London Authority, TFL that is more about morals and ethics than it is anything else because like you say, you know, David Schifferfield, architects, the work that they're trying to do around um, this, is, is, it looks amazing. But it doesn't seem to be the architecture, like you say, that's in question. It's the client. So you're right, you know, it will, autom- you know, it will attract controversy, You know that there'll be protest on a regular basis. Um, and you know that there are going to be implications for the wider community. And so that, so it all comes back down to the client, it's not the architecture. I think that's a really interesting change, which um, can really force architects to think carefully about their clients and um, you know the moral and ethical dilemmas that they're facing and do some of that mirror reflection and holding up to say why are we really taking this job why are we really competing for it Uh, is it actually just about money or is it really about you know the potential of doing something good because it would be amazing for all of those changes to happen to the mint and for it to be for um, a client that the firm feels is one that's going to really serve that society rather than be shut off from it because that as we know embassies are quite often very closed environments
0: And that's it. It really is a very, very prominent building. And it's in like a very kind of symbolic landscape of big buildings surrounding uh, the Tower of London, which is obviously one of the most historic structures uh, in the capital. Um, Now, we've seen a lot of embassy construction. The new U.S. Embassy in Nine Elms uh, is a huge building uh, by Kieran Timberlake architects, famously one that Donald Trump didn't like. Um, but over here, uh, we've got what will be an even bigger building. It will be the largest European embassy. OK, so it's like a real statement. Is this an example of a building uh, and its placement and its architecture being used for, for propaganda purposes uh, by, by the government that's commissioning it?
1: There is a very strong argument for that, of course. And, you know, it's not like China's not known for making big propaganda type statements, be it with buildings or events um however um again that is very much a british perspective and so yeah we could say this is all about propaganda but somebody else somewhere else would say something different and i think if there's anything about inclusion that we need to come to understand it's that whatever we believe to be true the opposite may also be true because truth can be incredibly subjective
0: and and certainly um the planning decision coinciding with a lot of protests happening in china you could say that the uk uh, a local authority in the uk deciding to reject that then Was a propaganda statement in itself against China. I mean, there's some people on the flip side would say that this is all anti-Chinese sentiment. You know, this is perhaps like a kind of xenophobia Um, in a part of London where there had traditionally there had been history of of xenophobia and uh, you know the Battle of Cable Street and people had to to fight back against some of this stuff, some of these projected preconceptions that people were having. Now, is it really possible in rejecting something like this to? to actually hold the Chinese Communist Party to account. I mean, is, the, is is Xi Jinping going to look at this and then suddenly change everything?
1: Yeah, no, but then that's not the point, I don't think. I, I, it's not about um, uh, doing something because you want to change the whole regime. It's about incremental steps to hold yourselves to account, to be able to look at yourself in the mirror and say, I made a decision that when in the bigger scheme of things, it felt morally and ethically um, the right thing to do. And Tower Hamlets Planning Council may well say, you know, given the human rights abuses, given, um, you know, the way things are in China right now, the way that people feel oppressed, um, given the lack of freedoms that some of them um, are experiencing, uh, this feels like the right thing to do right now. Um but you know, you speak to Chinese students who are over here, and those who obviously choose to leave the country and and who have the you know the wealth and privilege to be able to do so, um, well may well have a very different view. And I think it's really important that when we uh, look at uh, decisions like this, that we don't necessarily lump together the Chinese political system and the Chinese people.
0: So last year, local politicians in Tower Hamlets, they passed a cross-party motion in support of renaming some of the nearby streets uh, around the embassy proposal uh, to remember atrocities carried out by the Chinese Communist Party. So, for example, they wanted to have a, a street called Tiananmen Square, another one Hong Kong Road, Uyghur Court, Tibet Hill. Um now obviously that would have prompted if i had gone ahead potentially you know discussion and reflection on on these atrocities some of them ongoing um but obviously the site itself uh, where the royal mint court now stands that also contains you know several georgian buildings and these kind of reflect back on the UK's own imperial legacy as well, right? So, you know, perhaps some people would argue that that building then becoming a Chinese embassy, um, we know that in the 19th century, China uh, was uh, involved in the opium wars against Britain, uh, that there was a lot of dubious practices happening uh, by British imperialism. Is this a kind of a a fitting response or a fitting start of a discussion for the UK to reflect on, on its own historic human rights failings?
1: I think uh, Britain should uh, reflect on its own human rights and historic failings, regardless of what the Chinese are doing with their embassy. And uh, so it's somewhat, I I don't necessarily think it's a prompt. I think there's enough stuff going on in this country for that reflection to happen and to happen well, be it Colston or or Rhodes, Um, you know, Angela Saini, who... um, was lucky enough to speak to last year, uh, says that history is being rewritten and written all the time. And if we don't take in full understanding of the wider narratives, we're left with um, distorted perspectives on history. And, you know, people worry about, okay, if we're going to look at Georgian architecture, and where the money came from for that architecture, uh, is that somehow doing that building a disservice? Are we are we somehow, you know, rewriting history? Well, history is being written and rewritten all the time as we bring in different understanding and, and those different perspectives. And so that kind of reflection on our buildings, where the money came from, how... Uh, our streets have been named how our buildings are are their their historical context this reflection needs to be happening all the time and actually people need to be taking it less personally (laughs) you know somehow uh something that happened you know 300 years ago to uh someone's ancestors doesn't necessarily mean we have to hold them personally to account for it What we need to do is ask everyone to really look in the mirror and say, what is my history here? How can how can I account for it? And how am I going to move forward differently, knowing that my values are different from those? Uh, Because a lot of things happen within the context of the time. So that kind of reflection, like I say, should happen regardless of the architectural context.
0: This week, the AJ reported that Westminster City Council has approved Seldorf Architects' controversial plans to revamp Denise Scott Brown and Robert Venturi's Grade 1 listed National Gallery Sainsbury Wing. The plans by the New York-based practice to remodel the landmark Trafalgar Square building have divided the architecture sphere and ignited debate online. Denise Scott-Brown, one of the Sainsbury Wing's original architects, fiercely criticized Seldorf's proposals, telling the Observer, quote, there are elements of tragedy, circus clowns are made up to look happy, but they're not. This is a circus clown wearing a tutu, she said. So, Marsha, what does the Sainsbury Wing look like now? Uh, Why is it such an important existing building on Trafalgar Square and what would uh, Seldorf be planning to change?
1: Well, there's a lot going on here, isn't there? And, um, The Sainsbury Wing, I think even at the time, there there would have been some traditionalists who looked at that and said, oh, my gosh, I can't believe that monstrosity is being put on the side of the gallery. Um, And again, I'm not an architect. And what I would ask is that people reflect on the inclusivity of the building and what needs to happen to ensure as that uh, building and that space reaches its bicentenary and um, the mark that they they want to make at this time that the building is inclusive.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that you, you touch on the kind of impact of the building being constructed there in the 1980s because uh, it does have this famous backstory, which was that this very modernist architecture firm called ABK won a competition to design quite a high-tech building. Um, Prince Charles, now King Charles, um, sort of famously lashed out and, and said it would look like a monstrous carbuncle on the face of a dear loved friend. Um, that prompted a rethink. Uh, the brief changed, uh, changed and then... Uh, um, Robert Venturi and Denise Scott Brown came in and with with the current building, and the current building is um, like very much like a, a major moment in architectural history. It's the first building uh, that the pair of them designed in the UK. It's the only building they designed in the UK, um, and it kind of like fuses together postmodernism and the uh, historic references of the the building right next to it. How, what's your experience of going in that Sainsbury Wing? Um, is it inclusive enough in its current? format uh, does it feel welcoming on trafalgar square because obviously you know, a lot of money we're talking about like 36 million pounds or so is going to be spent to make it more inclusive is it, is it definitely broken
1: uh, i think that there's so many different things here uh, I, and i want to reference banksy if i may <laughs> of all people um he says that art is not like other culture because its success is not made by its audience the public fill concert halls and cinemas every day we read novels by the millions and by records by the billions. We are, we the people, affect the making and the quality of most of our culture, but not our art. The art we look at is made by only a select few. A small group create, promote, purchase, exhibit and decide the success of Art. Only a few hundred people in the world have any real say. When you go to an art gallery, you're simply a tourist looking at the trophy cabinet of a few millionaires. And so when it comes to the Sainsbury Wing, what it looks like now, whether it's accessible or inclusive, Banksy would say any art gallery is not inclusive. It's not accessible because the art itself that is housed there is not for everyone.
0: And then, obviously, this is a proposal which is all about improving access to the building, making a more inclusive environment. This is the National Gallery, but we know the RIBA uh, recently also held an architecture competition, and they selected a team for a big, ambitious project to make the RIBA headquarters on Portland Place uh, a-, a building that more people uh, feel welcomed in, and... Um, do similar issues apply here? And um, is the winning team of the RIBA project uh, diverse enough when it to make this project a success?
1: Thank you so much, Merlin, for asking me this question. Um, uh, and I, it's one that I'm going to struggle to answer in a way that is going to tread the best line between what I know to be true and what maybe the public have been told about. Uh, this particular competition now I haven't signed an NDA or anything like that but I have made promises to people about what I would and wouldn't say about this this particular competition Um, what I would say about it is that I'm not happy with um, the choice that's been made around it I think there's um, some different decisions that could have been made around inclusivity not just about the choice of who's going ahead to do it Uh, but what it's going to look like for the building. And I would ask the REBA to seriously look at its competition criteria when it comes to EDI and how that plays out, not just for its own competitions, but widely. Um, Because when I was in post, I wrote a really... a robust set of uh edi criteria for competitions uh that looked at a number of different things not only the staff involved in in um different um competitions and and the the teams that are putting themselves forward uh how they described um inclusivity uh within the submissions it looked at how um inclusivity was baked into the design and referenced, not just about accessibility more widely um, the actual uh, credentials of those who actually did stuff around uh, inclusivity not just spoke about it and how they look to really engage with the wider communities and the context in the work so it was a really robust uh, bit of competition criteria whether REBA are actually using those or not I don't know
0: The Board of Trustees of Open City, the charity that produces this podcast, has elected the design review champion, architect and founder of Frame Projects, Deborah Denner, to be the next chair of the charity. Denna, who is well known across the industry for her leading role in running successful design review panels, will take over from the current chair, Crispin Kelly, in March and lead the Open City board in its governance and oversight of the 30 year old organisation, including driving Open City's expansion into the West Midlands and with expansion of the Open House London Festival. Joining her will be Birmingham based Dav Bansall and Sheffield resident and director at Collaborate, L. Dodd. They've both been elected as vice chairs of Open City. Um, So, Marsha, what do trustees do at charities and why are they so important?
1: Hugely, hugely important. And the role of the non-executive director, the trustee of a charity, is around governance. Um, There is a fiduciary duty, of course, and making sure that the the books balance. Um, But it's also about guiding and supporting and encouraging um, the staff who run uh, these organisations and helping set a strategic direction and vision for it. Um, really wish them all the best and really do.
0: Uh, obviously, Open City set up the Open House London Festival. Very, very famous for that. Um, we also have the Open House Worldwide Network. There's so like 50 party cities around the world which uh, host Open House-style festivals. Um, but what's interesting, the board, uh, we've got Dav and Ellie, who are both based outside of London, Uh, joining in these these prominent leadership roles. So why is it important to have diversity, whether it be cultural, gender, geographical, etc., on boards when it comes to successfully advising a charity?
1: It's hugely important. Uh, Diversity isn't simply about racial difference or gender or sexuality. Diversity is simply the mix of visible and invisible difference and I really do always highlight geographical diversity um, as being a really important perspective Um, because those in a London bubble can really think that everything revolves around London. Now I'm I'm, um, not well I don't live in London I live in Derby in Derbyshire Um, so when I come down to London um, it gives me a really fresh perspective and enjoyment of the city Uh, but also it gives me a wider understanding of you know the UK and the impact that uh, everything being London centric can have so really um, importantly, understanding the uh, cost of living uh, differences and the way that that can impact what your pound can buy you, if it can buy you anything in London uh, versus uh, what it can get you elsewhere is a really important um, perspective to have on, on boards. And so I, I think it's brilliant that that kind of perspective has taken uh, Open City um, and other London organisations to really understand and reflect, or what does it mean to be in London?
0: Uh, We're on to the culture section. We're fast approaching Christmas. Um, Anyone who's subscribed to the Open City newsletter, you must subscribe to it, uh, will know that we have a lot of uh, really amazing gifts available from our online shop. Um, Something that created a ripple recently uh, was the London County Council Soap, uh, a facsimile that we created uh, of the iconic bar of soap Uh, which was distributed by the LCC to schools and other public buildings in its heyday. This has been manufactured uh, by the Soap Stars Brick 60, uh, based in King's Cross. Uh, Listeners of the show as well. Uh, And it's with enormous pleasure that we can announce that we have commissioned a new bar of soap. It's the LCC replica in yellow uh, in lemon blush. Uh, it looks absolutely stunning and it's a really good piece of soap and you can buy it uh, at the open city gift pop-up shop, uh, which will be at uh, design district next week on the 13th of December, Tuesday, we'll be recording the Lundown Christmas review uh, featuring Pete Bloxham, Sonny Bahatra, Ruth Lang, uh, Kath Lesser, and uh, chaired by our very own director, Phineas Harper. Uh, and there'll be a pop-up shop, so this is your big chance to get some, some gifts, last-minute gifts, uh, for all the London lovers in your life, uh, including uh, the super cool new yellow soap. Um, Marsha, it's been an immense pleasure to feature you on London this week. Um, Super insightful, uh, and I'm sure our listeners will enjoy hearing the show. Um, where should people go to stay up to speed on the work you're doing, the writing you're doing? Is there a website or social media handle?
1: Absolutely. Uh, please go to unheardvoice.co.uk. I'm the founder director of the strategic inclusion consultancy UnHeard Voice. Uh, so, unheardvoice.co.uk or find me at Marsha Ramroop.
0: Fab. Thank you for being on the show.
1: Delighted to be here. Thank you.
0: listening to the lundown a show from open city rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in london if you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed we recommend subscribing to the architect's journal which has covered all these issues and many more too you can find the show on twitter or instagram at, at @opencitylondon or by using the hashtag lundown Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk/slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible, and equitable city.